the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Greetings. My name is Mayor Jolovitz, and it's a pleasure, indeed an honor, to be sitting in today, filling in for Seth Leibson, a good, smart man. When my children were still young, old enough to know that my birthday was coming up, but too young and too poor to go out and buy me a present, I would do the shopping for them in advance. On more than one occasion, I would pre-purchase the present, have them gift-wrapped it the way a child would, and then surprise me with a gift on my birthday. I knew what was coming, but acted both surprised and quite elated to get the gift. After all, it was exactly what I wanted. For two, or perhaps it was three or four years in a row, they presented me with a book, different each year, but always a thick collection, an anthology of quotations. I just loved books of quotations. I still do. Now retired, I lecture extensively. I also give my share of speeches, and I serve as co-host of a radio show on this network, Middle East Radio Forum. And I still often turn to those books of quotations. They've served me well, and I trust they might again today, as we discuss appropriate of internationally related political issues. I'm reminded of that old dictum attributed at various times to various authors. Don't speak unless you can improve the silence. Well, because Seth has charged me with the task of filling in for these three hours, I seem to have no choice, and I hope that I don't disappoint. A number of years ago, I was driving to my weekly lecture with a particular theme in mind. Things aren't always what they seem to be, except in the Middle East. I wasn't exactly sure how I would begin. After all, it was just another of thousands of lectures I had delivered in my time. And then, while on my way, listening to some oldies radio station, the disc jockey told a fascinating tale. A group called the Cowsills was pressed to put out a song titled The Rain, The Park, and Other Things, produced by MGM. The song called for sound effects, the effects of raindrops falling in the background as the song began. Now, while the deadline for the song approached, several attempts to simulate the sound of rain were unsuccessful until someone, the sound technician, came up with a solution. In his kitchen, the sound of rain was imitated almost exactly by his bacon sizzling on the grill. It was perfect, and it was used to uh, to complete the song. The song, with its now famous opening, became a hit, reaching number two on the Billboard charts. You see, things aren't always what they seem to be, except in the Middle East, where things are exactly what they appear to be, if you engage in a little bit of critical thinking. Today, we hope to engage in a little more than a little bit of critical thinking. Today, because my expertise is focused on the politics of the Middle East, in general, and Israel in particular. 
I'll spend a great deal of time in the next three hours talking about the issues which have been in the forefront of the news everywhere the last two months. Now, all of you, unless you were among those to whom I sent an email yesterday when Seth asked me to fill in for him, all of you listening in were hoping to hear Seth Leibson. Today, you won't. So let me tell you a little about who I am. My name is Mayor Jolovitz. I was born in Israel, spent my entire adult life involved in pro-Israel advocacy, having lectured extensively in Middle East affairs. I obtained my master's in international relations and political theory. The subject of my thesis decades ago seems quite timely these days. The Politics of Terror in the Middle East, a study of ideology, strategy, and tactics. Among my many other career undertakings, I served with the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF. I worked with special projects for a Jerusalem-based think tank, the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies, and I served as the National Executive Director of the ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America, which is the oldest pro-Israel Zionist organization in America. And prior to retiring, I was the Executive Director of the Sephardi Community Center in Brooklyn, New York. Today, I continue to be involved in pro-Israel advocacy, lecturing on various geostrategic affairs, as well as current issues that affect Israel, the United States, and Western civilization. And yes, I also co-host with attorney William Wolf, a radio broadcast that's heard on this very station, Middle East Radio Forum, Sundays at noon, which is also, by the way, replayed Saturday night at 9 p.m. That's who I am. I have a signature opening that I do every Sunday when I do Middle East Radio Forum, understanding that there might be some new listeners every time, so I basically begin with the same signature opening. And it goes like this. Welcome to Middle East Radio Forum, the weekly program unafraid to tackle the issues of the day. Ours is the radio and internet broadcast, which offers a bold and unapologetic view of Middle East affairs. Every Sunday on the Middle East Radio Forum, we recognize and readily identify the struggle between competing civilizations, ideologies, and cultures, between Western values and those dedicated, dedicated to upending them. Then, as I continue with my signature opening, I posit that there's a war going on, a war of ideas, and I suggest that to frame it otherwise is to be dishonest, and the greatest form of dishonesty is self-deception. Now, I actually want to use this opportunity, sitting at Seth's microphone, to change, to amend that opening, specifically that phrase, the struggle between competing civilizations. And I'll tell you why. I listened to an excerpt of a speech given this past week by the conservative Dutch politician Gert Wilders, who has led the Party for Freedom since 2006. Wilders is best known for his populist anti-immigration views and his outspoken criticism of Islam. Wilders reminds us in his little piece that there is no different version of Islam. There are no various versions of Islam, just Islam. There is no moderate version of a religion that doesn't, ta- that doesn't tolerate anything moderate. Well, this past week, Wilders stated that Huntington was wrong. Now, he was referring to Samuel Huntington, once a professor at Harvard University, when he published his book, The Clash of Civilizations, in 1996, arguing that people's cultural and religious identities are the primary source of the conflict in the post-Cold War era. 
Wilders stated that Huntington was wrong, that there is no clash of civilizations, as I mentioned in my opening, but rather, Wilders says, a clash of civilization and barbarism. Gert Wilders is right. Today we see a clash between the civilized and the savage. That theme permeates all the work that I do. I started lecturing the Middle East affairs decades ago. It used to be called the Middle East Conflict, a value-free, non-judgmental title to the subject. It was the Arab-Israeli Conflict. A generation ago, things changed, not to the advantage of Israel, nor to the interest of serving the truth. Quite unfortunately, Israel stood by and watched as language was manipulated to serve the interest of Israel's adversaries and its enemies. Let me explain. There exists a fundamental failure to understand that the very nature of the conflict in the Middle East, and as such, we've been led invariably and inevitably to an axiomatic misunderstanding of a conflict, a conflict that ought to be the easiest of all to understand. This manipulation of language was purposeful. It redefined the conflict. And as such, it's brought to question the role of the United States in serving as an honest broker, as we'll discuss in detail today. Is the Palestinian issue really the crux of the Arab-Israeli conflict? I'll let Ambassador-at-Large, retired Yoram Ettinger, answer. In a piece that he wrote called Second Thought, a U.S.-Israel initiative, he said the following. Listen carefully. It underscores everything. Erroneous assumptions produce erroneous policies, as has been the case of all U.S. initiatives towards the Palestinian issue, which has been erroneously perceived by the United States foreign policy establishment to be the root cause of the Arab-Israeli conflict. The conflict in the Middle East ought to be labeled the Arab War Against Israel or the Muslim War Against the Jews. Instead, it has fraudulently been renamed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It is not. Listen to the song. Yes, hi, welcome back. Name is Mayor Jolovitz, sitting in for Seth Leibson. Today, we're going to cover, time permitting, a number of interrelated subjects. In discussing the Middle East, we're going to talk about the war in Gaza, the two-state solution, illusion, delusion, U.S.-American relations, and about critical thinking and the fact that we just don't have it anymore, the so-called experts. But I want to talk about the United States as well, because this isn't the same United States as we once knew. Some of you, perhaps many of you, might be old enough to recognize the next voice, It's the voice you're about to hear. It's the voice of an American radio broadcaster from ABC News Radio, a legend. He broadcasted a segment called News and Comments on weekdays, and on Saturdays, his famous The Rest of the Story segments. From 1951 to 2008, his programs reached as many as 24 million people each week. For 57 years, he did this. He was carried on 1,200 radio stations, on 400 American Forces Network stations, and in print by 300 newspapers. That unmistakable voice and the frequent call for moral clarity in politics and in life was the voice of Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey called Tulsa, Oklahoma his home, and then Chicago, but for many years he was actually a snowbird here in Phoenix. His voice, his style was universal, as were his messages. I want you to listen to this short three-minute soundbite titled, If I Were the Devil, 
a warning from 1965. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the... So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, You'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey. Good day. Fabulous. How different the world was then, even in our own lifetime. That's it, the words of wisdom, Paul Harvey. Those were the days when much of the world, certainly more than today, still understood who the good guys were and the things that actually mattered. We have a lot of segments to cover. As I said, we're going to be focusing primarily on the Middle East. And I mentioned earlier that quotations is part of what I do, so I'm going to give you one. Saul Bellow, in his book, To Jerusalem and Back, wrote the following. A great deal of intelligence can be invested in ignorance when the need for illusion is deep. Quite sadly, we live in a world 
and particularly in the Middle East, where illusion often prevails. An illusion we know invariably becomes delusion, which is the prescription for disaster. Today, as we proceed in the next uh, two and a half hours, we're going to be talking about the Middle East, the role of the United States, specifically the Biden administration, and this maddening call for a two-state solution imposed upon Israel. Let me give this to you folks. Noam Chomsky, some of you might know the name Noam Chomsky, is a well-known intellectual, a darling of the far left, a staunch supporter of any opponent of the Jewish state. He's often borderline lunatic. Jewish, he hates Israel. Once Israel destroyed, he is foe, not friend, but actually once said something worth quoting, and I will. Chomsky said, Stupidity comes in many forms, and most troubling of all, we might call it institutional stupidity. It's a kind of stupidity that's entirely rational within the framework within which it operates. But the framework itself ranges from grotesque to virtual insanity. He continued, individual stupidity can be remedied, but institutional stupidity is much more resistant to change. At this stage of human society, it truly endangers our, our survival. That's why I think institutional stupidity should be of prime concern. Chomsky was right, but he was otherwise always insane and stupid. But he's right that there is a systemic institutional stupidity when it comes to the whole issue of Israel in the Middle East. There is no conflict in modern times that is more the case of right versus wrong than the case of Israel and its enemies. None. There is no gray here. And yet, even the allies, or the so-called allies, or the so-called friends of Israel, talk about the gray area. That Israel, because it is civilized, needs to somehow compromise. It needs to surrender. While no such demand is made of the, of the savage, the savage that Gert Wilders had spoken about. Today I'm going to give you, I normally don't cite Israeli sources. I don't quote them. I let the Arabs speak for themselves. I will let today the Arabs speak for themselves, both Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, and you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. Hi, welcome back. My name is Mayor Jolovitz. A pleasure to sit in today for Seth Leibson. You know the name Mike Rowe. Mike Rowe is an American television host, occasional commentator, best known for his work on the Disney Channel, that series Dirty Jobs. Mike Rowe is a decent, common-sense guy, very pro-America. He's become a strong advocate of our youth learning a trade like welding, carpentry. Instead of wasting $78,000 a year on a Harvard education, among his gems is this, and I quote, we're churning out a generation of poorly educated people with no skill, no ambition, no guidance, and no realistic expectation of what it means to go to work, end quote. In keeping with some of the topics that Seth leaps and occasionally talks about, which includes this generation's mindset and the stay-at-home philosophy that is in, was engendered by the twin forces of COVID and Zoom, I want to offer this. It's not original. <laughs> Two factory workers are talking. The woman says, I can make the boss give me the day off. The man replies, and how would you do that? The woman says, just wait 
and see. She then hangs upside down from the ceiling. The boss comes in and says, what are you doing? The woman replies, I'm a light bulb. I'm a light bulb. The boss says, you've been working so much that you've gone crazy. I think you need to take the day off. As she leaves, the man starts to follow her. And the boss says, where are you going? And the man says, I'm going home too. I can't work in the dark. Sort of describes American youth today. It's funny, yes, but it's reflective of the state of affairs describing the work ethic of our young generation and the reason the Chinese are so optimistic about dominating us in the coming decades. But implicit there also was the fact that uh, stupidity does reign. And the so-called experts, as I will continue to say during my time with you today, are not experts. I'm going to be talking about Israel. I'm going to be talking about uh, the demands that the United States, or more specifically, the Biden administration has placed on Israel. And I want to give it a perspective that you might have not heard elsewhere. This notion of a two-state solution. It sounds quixotic. It sounds, you know what? Maybe that's the solution. And it's exactly the opposite. Let me give you a little background. Major General Moshe Dayan wrote a piece in January of 1955. Mind you, Israel was created as a state in 1948, seven years before. As a major general, before he became world famous, he had a piece that appeared in Foreign Affairs titled Israel's Border and Security Problems. Long forgotten now, the article is no less relevant today, particularly because it gives this the ubiquitous cause for the two-state solution, a second think-over. Here's what he wrote then, in 1955. And I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to replace one word before we're done. Seven years after its war of independence, the state of Israel still faces a security problem of unusual complexity. The area of the country is only 8,100 square miles, which, by the way, is smaller than Maricopa County. The area of the, count of, the count of the country is only 8,100 square miles, but owing to the configuration of its territory, there are 400 miles of frontier. Three-quarters of the population of Israel lives in the coastal plain, running from north in Haifa to the south in Tel Aviv, with a slender branching off to Jerusalem. This densely settled area has an average width of no more than 12 miles between the Mediterranean and the Jordan border. That's the river to the sea that you keep hearing about. From the Israeli parliament buildings in Jerusalem, the armed sentries of the Jordanian Arab Legion can be seen a few hundred yards away. The headquarters of Israel's general staff in the coastal plain are within clear view the hills which mark the Jordan frontier. The country's main roads and railroads are exposed to swift and easy incursion. Scarcely anywhere in Israel can a man live or work beyond the easy range of enemy fire, except perhaps in the Negev. No settlement is at a distance of more than 20 miles from an Arab frontier. Thus, he says, the term frontier security has little meaning in the context of Israel's geography. When we come back, and a little later on, I want you to substitute the word here, Palestinian for, Jord- for Jordanian, and you'll see that Israel today has the same problem that it had in 1955, an enemy breathing right on its border. Hi, Mayor Jolovitz sitting in for the great Seth Leibson. On Middle East Radio Forum, the broadcast that I co-host with attorney William Wolf on Sundays on this station, 
I have, on two or three occasions, featured comments by Pat Condell in the form of short audio sound bites. Over a course of a decade and a half, Pat Condell, a British polemicist, social commentator, has been one of the same voices on social media. Condell, who was once a strong critic of religion, in fact all religions, made his mark the past 10 years exposing the Islamic war against the West and Islam's remarkable history in violation of human rights. It was only after Condell made his mark as a critic of the West's appeasement to Islam that people started paying attention. Because his commentaries were always bold, brazen, and rich in sarcasm, he's been banned on various occasions from different platforms and social media. Pat Condell is a truth-teller. His opinion is as important as it is entertaining. And it happens to be as truthful as any commentary that you might hear elsewhere. With the Middle East and Hamas in the news every hour, I pulled up a piece from nine years ago, mind you, to show you how ever-relevant it is still today. You can categorize this under the title, The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same. Listen once again to this wonderful style of Pat Condell as he purveys the truth. If we're serious about peace in the Middle East, then we need to stop pretending that the Israelis are dealing with a rational enemy they can negotiate with, because in doing that, we're helping to feed a massive political lie whose gravitational force has become so great it has warped reality. It's Hamas who turned Gaza into a war zone recently, not Israel, and it's Hamas who will do so again, and again, and again. They don't care about the people there. They regard them as expendable in the cause of jihad. Why do you think there are no bomb shelters in Gaza, except, of course, for the brave Hamas fighters who keep telling us they love death more than we love life, yet who scuttle away to safety as soon as the bombs come in, leaving the women and children to fend for themselves? Wouldn't you suppose, as they were lobbing rockets over the border every day, that they would have given some thought to protecting ordinary people from possible retaliation? No, they'd rather build luxury hotels to accommodate gullible Western journalists who can be trusted to portray them as heroic victims and the Israelis as neo-Nazi oppressors. In fact, it's Hamas who are the Nazis. Their political agenda is virtually identical, with the same genocidal supremacist delusions and the same irrational, violent hatred of Jews for being Jews. Actually, the Nazis have a moral edge on Hamas. They were psychotic, murdering scumbags as well, but at least they didn't use their own people as human shields. Hamas don't give a damn about the people of Gaza. They want them to be killed, especially the children, whose bodies make wonderful propaganda. That's why they deliberately put them in the firing line, as fodder, as just another weapon to be used and discarded, or martyred, which is the Islamic euphemism for somebody whose life has been thrown away for absolutely nothing. Israel wants peace and has always wanted peace. It's a modern, civilised country and a world technological leader. The last thing it needs is war. That should be obvious to everyone. Israel would like nothing better than for Gaza to be thriving and prosperous and the people to be happy and free. They would even bankroll it if they thought it would work. But Hamas don't want the people happy and free. They want them miserable and blaming Jews for it. Because Hamas are Islamic fanatics. Jihadis, the same mentality that flew into the Twin Towers and then blamed, guess who, the Jews. They bribed the people of Gaza to elect them on a political platform, but once in power, they enforced their religion with an iron fist. Does anyone seriously think they'd be elected again? 
We'll never know. Because once elected, an Islamist government is elected forever. And anybody who wants to argue about it can expect to be murdered and their corpse dragged through the streets behind a motorcycle, as happened last week in Gaza. These are men who are so hypnotized by their callous and violent religion and so bereft of any semblance of moral decency or compassion that they'll happily murder someone for expressing a moment of joy by singing at a wedding, as happened last week in Gaza. Singing is outlawed in their Islamic paradise. Joy is forbidden. Happiness is haram. They invoke the Quran in their founding charter, especially the passage about killing Jews. That's a big favourite. And they teach their children that the highest thing they can aspire to is to kill themselves by killing Jews. And these are the people the Israelis are supposed to negotiate with. It would be easier to reason with a rattlesnake. So let's say you're the Israeli Prime Minister. What do you do? How do you deal with people who want you and everybody like you dead at any price and whose position is not negotiable? Give up territory? Dismantle settlements? That's been tried and it doesn't work, or didn't anybody notice? Israel dismantled settlements and uprooted thousands of people when it withdrew from Gaza. And what did it get? A barrage of rockets and bombs that hasn't stopped to this day. So clearly dismantling settlements doesn't work. What else have we got? Mediation? Diplomacy? Restart the peace process? Yeah, in your dreams. There is no peace process, and there never will be as long as Hamas is around, because there's no such thing as a one-sided coin. And Hamas have made it clear they have no intention of negotiating peace ever. It's written right into their charter. Look it up. Peace would be un-Islamic. No negotiation and no let-up in jihad also enshrined in the Charter, until every Jew in the Middle East has been driven out or killed. That's what they want, and it's not negotiable. Why do we keep pretending that they want something else? The Charter also forbids anybody else from negotiating peace. So if peace ever does break out, we can be sure Hamas will put a stop to it in double-quick time. But let's ignore all that and pretend that it's all about territory and politics and have another round of negotiations anyway. Let's hammer out another worthless accord. Let's get round a table and go through the motions again and then hand out Nobel Prizes all round. We have to be seen to be doing something even if it's nothing. And nothing is what it'll be in spades because negotiating with the likes of Hamas is like pouring light into a black hole. They don't want peace at any price. They want Jewish blood. End of story. That's why they break every ceasefire. That's why their own people are expendable. That's why no agreement with them is worth the paper it's written on. That's why there is no two-state solution and never will be as long as they're around. And that's why they need to be defeated decisively and permanently or this madness will never, ever stop. Shaking off these fanatical, violent barbarians is the only way the Palestinian people will ever be truly liberated. And if the rest of us really care about peace, we should be honest enough to admit that. Fantastic. Pat Condell. And nothing has changed. That was nine years ago. By the way, Article 8 of the Hamas Charter from 1988. Allah is its goal. The messenger is its leader, the Quran is its constitution, jihad is the methodology, and death for the sake of Allah is its most coveted desire. That is what Israel has been dealing with. Um, do we have a commercial break coming up? In a minute, I'm signaled by uh, David Dahl. What a wonderful gentleman. Um, when we come back, 
we're going to be doing a short segment, then I'm going to be setting up the second hour. And I want to talk in greater detail about the two-state solution, about the territories, uh, and bring to light something that most people don't let you know, the downside of this phony, fraudulent piece. We'll be right back. Yes, hi, welcome back. Uh, the last segment before the uh, hour break, Mayor Jolovitz sitting in for Seth Leibson. When we come back after the news uh, at the hour break, there is a, an, it's another soundbite. Uh, these are very valuable soundbites, otherwise I wouldn't ask you to listen. But it's going to be particularly long. It's going to fill most of the segment when we come back. So I'm going to do the introduction for it now. The sound piece that you'll hear will be the voice of Melanie Phillips. Melanie Phillips is a British journalist, an author, probably know her, a public commentator. Her writings appear everywhere. Phillips is an intellectual of the first order. During the 1990s, she came to identify with political and social issues from a social conservative perspective, different than her previous life. Phillips describes herself as a liberal who has been mugged by reality. She's a wonderfully brilliant voice in search, excuse me, in service to the cause of a strong, secure Israel and a sane Israel. We have a segment that we'll play when we come back from the hour break. It'll be a segment of an interview that she did with Israeli television 12 years ago. It's important that you understand that. 12 years ago, you'll see the relevance of how it seems that it was done this week. Interview done 12 years ago with Israeli television, where she correctly identified a political pathology that has taken hold and part of the Western world's inability to separate myth from fact. And worse, the Western world's surrender to the narrative of Israel's enemies. In defending Israel, in defending Israel, Melanie Phillips points that accusatory finger at Israel as well, suggesting that the Jewish state is feeble in offering its own defense. I need you to listen carefully when we come back. The piece is a masterpiece. Melanie Phillips talking about, and for those of you who do have occasion to listen to Middle East Radio Forum on Sundays at noon, the show that I co-host with William Wolfe, you'll understand that we too criticize Israel, and quite frequently. But we criticize Israel from a position that will strengthen it. We criticize Israel when Israel engages in what we deem to be a measure of appeasement with the Arab world, with the Muslim world, with the world that wants it dead. And the message that we will deliver today, as we do every Sunday, is that the enemy doesn't surrender to appeasement. It surrenders to strength. And Israel needs to tell the United States, and in this particular case, the Biden administration, to step aside. Israel has a war to win, and it needs to win it without American interference. We have a commercial break coming. And when we come back, the news and then that piece, a brilliant piece, 12 years ago, Melanie Phillips. You will enjoy it. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.